have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, if you would please turn with me uh, to the book of First Peter. We're going to go back to First Peter. We were there in the first week of this series, and uh, we're going to be in First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. And uh, before we get to our reading of Scripture this morning, uh, I have a question in here. Uh, does anyone know a man? Um, and this may be an obscure ask, but does anyone know a man by the name of Bernie May? Bernie May. Anybody? So Bernie May was the head of the Wycliffe Bible Translators Unit, uh, based out of the United States. And he was there for quite some time at that post. And one time he had an opportunity to go onto the mission field and he went to go visit a young couple and their three children in a Muslim nation. And he, he was going to visit this young couple because they had been there for three years doing work with a people group of over 100,000 people that had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They had no knowledge of Jesus at all. Now this couple, this young couple, had three children and they were all under the age of five. So young toddlers. And when Bernie May got to their home, he quickly realized that something was out of place. He quickly realized that something was not good in this situation. They had a young baby who was only probably about 10 to 12 months old. And he noticed that the baby was covered in all of these red marks and the red marks were starting to get infected. And so he asked the mother, does your baby have chicken pox? And the mom says, no, Bernie, those are ant bites. Those are ant bites. We can't keep the ants off of him. But eventually we are told that he will become immune to the bites. And they will no longer be infected. Now this woman and her husband came from the mid-USA and now they're living in a country where the temperature is above 100 degrees for most of the year. Their children were covered in ant bites. There's a war going on. The helpers in the village are in danger just because they are their friends. Many in the village are suffering from hunger and from disease. They can't even let their supporters know what they are doing or how they can pray for them because they're in an area listed by the International Missions Board as critical. They cannot know that missionaries are there. And Bernie was only there for three days, and he records that he was already starting to come unglued, and yet this dedicated young couple was laughing. They were joking. They were having fun. They were playing with their children. He said it was like they were filled with the joy of the Lord in the midst of some of the most tumultuous circumstances that you could even attempt to fathom. There's another man by the name of Paul Brand. He was a missionary surgeon who worked in the country of India. And he wrote a book called The Gift of Pain. He says, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us not as opposites, but as Siamese twins. They are strangely joined and intertwined together. He goes on to say that nearly all of my memories of acute happiness or joy involve some element of pain 
suffering, and struggle. You know, in all of my years on this earth, in all of my years in ministry, I have never, ever heard anybody ever say to me that the deepest and the most satisfying joy in their life came from earthly comfort. Nobody's ever said that to me. Never. Why? Because that's not true. Earthly comfort cannot bring you everlasting or satisfying joy. And that's why I've never heard it. But what is true, what is really true, and I believe speaks to both of those situations, Paul Brand and Bernie May's uh, trip overseas was what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said, those who dive into the sea of affliction bring up the rarest of pearls. Our passage today that we're going to look at is a letter mainly about how we can rejoice in the midst of our pain. How we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering or our trials and circumstances. Today's text, in fact, commands us to be like this and gives us at least six reasons why we should rejoice. So if you would look with me at 1 Peter chapter number 4, and we're going to start in verse number 12. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Man, anybody ever say that to you before? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let no one or let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Uh, if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline that phrase. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we ask of you to please illuminate these few verses here in the text. Teach us, Lord, how we can rejoice in the midst of our circumstances, no matter what the situation that lies before us, no matter what the storm we are walking out of, preparing for, or in the midst of right now, Lord. Teach us how to rejoice by looking to you. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Now, if we look here in the text, the command that we see in Scripture is found right in verse number 13. Now, church, I just want to kind of enlighten us this morning. This is not a little piece of advice about the power of positive thinking. Look back at verse number 13. He says, but rejoice 
in some versions, in as much or in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is a radical, abnormal, supernatural way to respond to suffering. Amen? Man, how many of you are in the midst of suffering and your first thought is, praise Jesus? Right? It's not. It's not, and I'll tell you why. Because the fleshly nature in us loves our comfort here on this earth. And so it takes, it takes a little bit to get our, place, our, our mind in a place where we can say, thank God for the suffering that I'm walking through. Thank God for this circumstance. Thank God for this situation. Man, when James penned the words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, James gave what many would see as foolish advice. Count it all joy when you're in the midst of trials. You want to know what's foolish? The Christian, the Christian should not believe it's foolish. What's foolish is to those who are not followers of God. But those who do follow God, count it all joy, is a beautiful picture of how we walk out this life with the help and the support and the, the sustenance of God in our lives. You and I should never, ever in this life deny the place of suffering in building godliness into our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again one more time. You and I should never deny the place of suffering in building godliness into the Christian life. You know, there are, there are times uh, of needless pain that we bear. And oftentimes it's, it's through a lack of knowledge or a lack of faith. But there is also necessary suffering that we see here in the scripture. And to even take that a step further before, before you, you start to mess with that in your mind. Suffering, according to the book of Hebrews, suffering was a suitable tool to teach Jesus. It was a suitable tool to teach Jesus according to Hebrews chapter 5. And if it was a suitable tool to teach Jesus, then it is a suitable tool to teach his servants. It is a suitable tool. And so Peter gives us six reasons why we can rejoice in the midst of our circumstances. And they all relate to God. And so the first one I want you to see is rejoice because suffering is not a surprise, but a plan. Suffering is not a surprise, but a plan. I want you to look back with me at verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering, church, is not absurd. It isn't meaningless. It has a purpose in our lives. And it says right here in the text, it's for our testing. It's for our testing. And so instead of thinking of trials, even the most minute of them, even the, the fiery trials that we may have to walk through, instead of thinking of them as strange occurrences, we should see them as ways to partake in Christ's suffering. That's how we should see it. And if we partake in the suffering of Christ, we are also partaking in his glory and his joy in the end. Amen? We, church, we can only partake 
of Christ's suffering because he partook of our humanity and our suffering when he was here. That's the only reason that we get to partake in his suffering. He became a man and he suffered so that our suffering would not be meaningless. That it wouldn't be useless in this life. In church, I don't know if you believe this or not, but I have come to learn that it is good to share anything with Jesus. It's good to share anything with Jesus, even his suffering. Even his suffering. Our tendency, though, our tendency, if we truly are honest, right, all for honesty in church, if we're really honest this morning, our tendency is to embrace the glory and the joy and avoid any of the sharing of the suffering. Or we have a tendency to be on the other ditch, right? We morbidly fixate on the suffering and we forget that it is but a necessary prelude to the glory and joy that is to come. I want you to look back with me at verse number 19. The very end. Look what Peter says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to what? God's will. According to God's will. And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what? While doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will. Suffering church is not outside of the will of God. It's not. In fact, it's in the will of God, according to Peter, right here in the text. And that's true even when Satan and his followers may be the immediate cause. It's still true. Well, how can you say that, Pastor? Because God is sovereign over all things. That's how. God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering and including Satan. God is sovereign. And when pain and suffering strikes, even Christians can begin to question the goodness and the power of God. If God is good, then why does he allow suffering in this life? Or perhaps, why would a good God allow my suffering to persist even? Now I want you to go back and reread number 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you for your testing. Look at verse number 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Church, the, the point is this. God's judgment is already moving through the earth. This is not his ultimate or end judgment, but his judgment is already moving through the earth. And in the context of suffering, Peter is telling us right here that judgment begins with the believer. Judgment begins with the follower of Jesus Christ. And so right now, Wherever you're at, whatever you've walked through, whatever you've been walking through, whatever storm you're in the midst of, right now, God is using that suffering as judgment in a positive, purifying sense for you as a follower. He's using it for you. And as believers, we do not escape the, the judgment of God. Listen, church, when the fires of judgment burn, it's a testing, it's proving, it's purifying us. It's a sanctification that is occurring in the life of a believer. And when it burns the world, 
It either awakens them or it destroys them. Those are the only two choices. And now, right now, Peter said, is our time of fiery trial. The ungodly will have their fire later. And the fire we endure right now is purifying you. It's shaping you and molding you more into the image of Christ. The fire that the ungodly will endure will punish them. Not change them into Christ's image. It's to punish them. And yet here we are this morning and there are so many situations going on here in our body. And we must never ever forget that there is never any punishment for God for us in our suffering. Only purification. Only purification. For the, the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and for all at the cross. It was settled once and for all. Where Jesus endured all of the punishment that the Christian could or would ever face from God. And the same fire, church, that would consume straw, purifies gold. The fire is the same exact fire, but its purpose and its application, completely different. Completely. Its effect, completely different. The, did you notice the, the example I gave? The same fire that would destroy and, and eat up and burn up the straw purifies the gold. It purifies. And so Christians... We, we suffer some of the same things that the ungodly people do, and yet the purpose of God is different, and the effect on our life should be different. Look back with me at verse 18. He says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter's sobering application here for the Christian is clear. If this is what God's children experience, what will become of those who have made themselves his enemies? Those who have rejected? How could they ever hope to stand before the judgment and the wrath of God? The Christian here this morning, those online, you can rejoice that the suffering that you face in this life right now is the worst that you will face throughout eternity. Man, that was a great spot for an amen. The suffering that we face right here, right now on this earth is the worst thing that we will face for all of eternity. We have already seen our worst here. But those who reject Jesus, man, they're living their best life right now and the worst is coming for them for eternal existence in, in a separated state against or away from the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Only wrath for eternity. And if that doesn't make you want to share the gospel with lost people in your circle of influence, then I would do a heart check on my relationship with the Lord. And since all of that is true, all of this is seen in Scripture, salvation of the righteous does not come without difficulty. It doesn't. And it really should make us pause. It should make us pause if we ourselves or others seem to have an easy life, an easy salvation. 
It isn't necessarily, necessarily that our salvation is difficult in the sense of earning it or finding a way to deserve it because we know that it's a free gift of God. But our salvation is hard in the sense that it, its claim of discipleship in this life, it challenges us and it demands that we cast away our idols and our sinfulness and become more like Christ. Real discipleship. Real, genuine follower, followership after Jesus Christ is a hard thing. Amen? It's a hard thing. And that's why we understand why Peter really quoted here in verse 18 from the Old Testament. The righteous one is scarcely saved. Believer, you will pass through the testing of God's judgment here on the earth, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And because he wills that you become pure. I have learned in this life that God hates sin so much. And he loves his children so much. That he will not spare us any pain to rid us of what he hates. Suffering in the church is not surprising. It's planned. It was planned, testing, purifying. It proves and strengthens real faith in the believer. But you want to know what else it does? What else the trial and the testing does? It consumes performance-based faith. It completely rids us uh, of the necessary steps that we believe we have to take in order to, to look good before God. Man, if God only accepted us based upon our, before our performance, we're all doomed to hell. Every single one of us. We would be doomed to hell because we can't live this life on a performance basis. No, it was the love and the grace and the mercy of God that provided a way for us to enter that relationship with his son. To live peaceably with him, as Paul said in Romans chapter 5. And so for you and I, the suffering that we face, it's to purify us. It's to make us look like his son. Church, there was a man by the name of Boris Kornfeld who was a Jewish doctor. He was on the mission field in Russia and was arrested and placed in prison. And one night he had the opportunity to share his conversion story with a group of prisoners inside of a Russian cell. And inside that cell, inside that cell, he began to share the grace and the mercy of God. He began to share about the forgiveness and the mercy and the wrath of God. And 14 men gave their lives to Christ that night. One of the military men in the prison overheard Kornfeld and they brought him out of the cell and they beat him to death in front of those 14 prisoners. And one of the prisoners said that Kornfeld's last words, as he lay there moments away from his death, he said, it is as I lay here on this prison floor that I sensed with me my good father. And he said with his final breath, bless you, Lord, for this prison has been my life. Bless you, Lord, that I've been beaten to death for your name.
we have a strong hope, a strong hope that the sufferings of our current day bring about purity, not only just in our life, but for those around us to see. I don't have time to unpack this this morning, but the word sanctification means to be set apart for holy use. I was taught for years and years and years that sanctification was for me and mine. That's not true at all. Sanctification, yes, is is to purify me to look more like Christ, but it's so that I am set apart for holy use. It's, It's for other people to see Christ in me. My sanctification is so that others know that there is a God that is real and true. And there is a God that can change you and help you to overcome your addictions and help change your ways of thinking and help change the places that you go. And so church, never, ever, ever negate suffering in your life because it's, it's not just to purify you, it's so that others look at you and see Jesus. Suffering is not surprise, it's planned. The second thing I want you to see is that we should rejoice because suffering is evidence of our union with Christ. It's evidence. If you look back at the beginning of verse number 13, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. And and you share. In other words, your suffering is not your own. It is also Christ's. It's not your own. This is cause for each one of us to rejoice because it means that we are united to the life-giving God, the sustainer God, the provider God, the God of peace, the, the great physician, the great I am, the alpha, the omega. We are attached. We are united to him. There was a man that I shared uh, several months ago uh, how many of you in here know the author and pastor by the name of R.T. Kendall? R.T. Kendall. He pastored at Westminster in London for years and years and years. R.T. Kendall had a very good friend whose name was Joseph Son, and he was a Romanian pastor. And he, as a, as a Romanian pastor, stood up against the repressions of Christianity in Romania as well as Kosovo, or what was, what was there called Albania at that time. And he wrote this before his death. He said, this union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am just an extension of Jesus himself. Not in some way to say that he is God, When I was beaten in Romania, Christ suffered in my body, Joseph said. It was not my suffering. I just had the honor to share his suffering. Keep rejoicing, church. Because your suffering as a Christian is not yours, but it's Christ's. It's Christ's, and it gives evidence of your union with him. The third, the third reason that we should rejoice is because suffering helps us to attain greater joy. Look at the rest of verse number 13. He says, after, after rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering, he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you notice? Did you notice something here in the text? Rejoice now so that you may rejoice then. That you rejoice at the end. 
Our joy right now through suffering is the means of attaining our joy then a thousandfold when glory comes. A thousandfold. First there is suffering, then there is glory. First there is suffering, then there is glory. Do you guys remember from the very first week of this series? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, the Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ, but then the glory that would follow. The glory that came after he suffered here on this earth. And Paul, man, go to a different, a different writer of the New Testament. Paul said, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Be glorified. First suffering, then the glory both for Jesus and for those who are united to him. If you and I become resentful towards life and resentful towards the pain that it deals to us, then we're not preparing to rejoice at Christ's glory. We're not. In fact, Paul wrote in Philippians, in one of my favorite chapters of the New Testament chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Paul said, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Just knowing. He counts everything else as a loss because he knows Jesus. Because he knows him. Knowing Christ in this life, for you and I, knowing him right now, experiencing fellowship with God right now is more precious and more satisfying and more sweet than anything that this world has to offer. Amen? You and I shouldn't just be waiting to see how all the circumstances are going to turn out. We shouldn't just be waiting to see how God's going to work everything for good. We can experience the sweetness of our relationship with Christ in the middle of our suffering. In the middle of the pain, in the middle of the loss, in the middle of the heartache. And so then you're like, well, pastor, then what's the secret? Because I feel like my life's been spinning out of control for the last 10 months, the last year, the last week. So what, what is the secret then? I have learned the secret of being uh, based in hungering and going without. And I've also learned the secret of abundance and prosperity. And that secret is faith in God's sovereignty, that God knows best. I don't know how many times in this life I've had to go back to the Old Testament and, and quote scripture that says, your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. They're not. God's sovereignty, though, is, is not often talked about in church, is the reason that we can have joy in the midst of our suffering, knowing that God has his hand in the midst of the mess, that he is there. And when you and I have little, and when we have lost everything, Christ comes and he reveals himself as more valuable than anything that we have lost in this world. And when we have much, 
And when everything is overflowing in this life and we're in the midst of abundance, Christ still comes and he shows that he is far superior to everything that we have in our possession. And so church, the secret of joy in the midst of hard times, in in this book right here, tells us it's the supremacy of God. It is the supremacy of the sovereignty of God in this life. And because of that, there is a sweetness of his relationship with us. And so, so believer, rejoice right now in the midst of your suffering so that you might rejoice later a thousandfold when his glory is revealed. The fourth reason to rejoice is because the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. I want you to look back at verse number 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So you may be sitting out there and you're like, what in the world does that mean? The spirit of glory and of God resting upon me. What does that even mean? Well, the answer is simply this. In great suffering here on this earth, there is great support from heaven. Amen? In great suffering here on this earth, there is great support from heaven. I believe David said it best in Psalm 46 when he said, God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble. You may be sitting out here this morning thinking that you are not going to be able to bear one more thing that comes your way. But if you are Christ's, if you are one of his children, you will be able to bear it. Why? Because he comes and rests upon you. Not because of anything you did, but because he comes and rests upon you. Suffering, church, in the name of Christ is a blessing because it shows that we truly are following him. It shows that we are walking with him and that we suffer because we identify with him. If you and I say, well, what is this? What is it, really? How can this occur in my life? How can God allow this sickness or how can God allow the loss of my spouse or the loss of my parent or, or my child or, or the loss of my job? My car breaks down. I, I broke a bone. I don't have the money to, to pay my bills. Church, it is a question of how Christians choose to see the reality of their circumstances. You can say, well, I'm being insulted or or I'm having a bad day and my Christian life is going nowhere and it feels like everything's off track and I have nobody here to support me and nobody wants to listen to me about my pain. Or we can turn around and say, what a blessing it is. What a blessing it is to be so closely identified with Jesus Christ that the world and the situations and the circumstances treat me the same way that it treated him. It treated Jesus the same way. You don't, you don't believe that Jesus came to this earth and got off scot-free while he was here. He was human. He still endured everything that we endure here on this earth while he was here. And guess what, church? This is exactly what life is for. Exactly what life is for. It's not about you and I taking some falsely spiritual attitude. 
And before I say anything else, I just, I need to, I need to say this to you, church. Real, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Real, genuine believers never have to pretend when they walk in the house of God that everything is okay. We come into this building, and, I, and I'm not pinpointing any one person because I'm just as guilty as the next. But how often do we walk into this building and someone says, hey, how you doing? You're like, great, grand, everything's good in my life. And you just put on this fake smile and you, you've just put on the Christian facade because you believe that the people in the church are going to look at you differently because you're suffering differently than they are. Or you're walking through, with, through something in this life or you're struggling differently than they struggle. Church, the last thing that you want to do is begin to be fake when we're here amongst other believers. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have to act like everything is all together so that people don't think of you differently. This life here in Christ, we were made to do this with other believers. We need other believers in this life and in your life to be a part of your life. You can't do this alone. And this is not some attempt for you to be forced into friendships with other people here in this church. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that it is to live a lie for you to walk into this building or to walk into a restaurant or into somebody's house and to boldly say there's nothing wrong if there's something going on inside of you. It is, a, it is to live a lie. And yes, it may be difficult for you to share, but man, how do you know that person's not going to grab a hold of you and say, let's pray. Let me walk through that with you. I've been through the same thing. There are so many people here in this church that want genuine, authentic relationships. And I'm telling you, it's not only meaningful in this life, it's necessary. It's necessary. The last year and a half of, of my family's life, we would not have been able to make it without some people here in this church. We would not have been able to make it. There are a few families in this church that have come alongside of us in ways that they probably could never even imagine how it's affected us. We can't do this life alone. And so it's not for you and I to take some false spiritual attitude. It's about correcting our perspective in the moment of suffering. So that it aligns with what we believe about who Christ is and who we are in Christ. Because if we're seeking to be holy in this life. And we're seeking to bring truth into our lives and our families' lives and our friends' lives. And we're seeking to bear witness of what Christ has done. Then we shouldn't turn aside from the risk of pain and suffering. Because sooner or later, the, the spirit of glory and of God will be resting upon you in the midst of your suffering. And so the fifth thing I want us to see this morning is that we should rejoice because suffering brings glory to God. If you look back at verse 
number 16. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering for you and I as Christians is nothing to be ashamed of. Even though the world may despise the suffering Christian, instead you and I should be glorifying God in these matters. We, we don't glorify God for suffering, but we glorify God in the midst of suffering. And we glorify Him for what He accomplishes in us and through us because of that suffering. And so you may be sitting out there and you, you're like, well, I hear that term all the time. Glory or glorify. What does that even mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, to glorify God means that we praise Him with absolute contentment. Did you guys catch that? That we praise Him for like in and with absolute contentment. We know that our lot is God's plan for us right now. Right now. And when we keep rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God is the source of joy in your life. That it's not something else. You know that, that missionary doctor I just mentioned a little bit ago, Paul Brand? He tells the story in one of the books that he wrote about his mother, who was also a missionary in India, and, and who did something that symbolized a life devoted through suffering to the glory of God and not to the glory of self. And Paul Brand said this, For mother, pain was a frequent companion. And so was sacrifice. I'm sorry. Because as I read this, I... Just thought about my own mother. Pain was a frequent companion, as was, as was sacrifice. And I say it kindly and in love. But in old age, mother had little of physical beauty left. And I don't, I'm not saying that about you, mom. The rugged conditions of India, combined with the crippling falls and my mother's battle with typhoid and dysentery and malaria, she had been made very thin and hunched over in her old age. Years of exposure to wind and sun had toughened her skin into leather and it had furrowed it with wrinkles as deep and as extensive as any that I have ever seen on human faces. He said, my mother knew all too well, even in fact more than anyone else who looked upon her, how she looked. And he said, for 20 years leading up to her death, she refused to keep a mirror in her home. For 20 years, she never looked at herself. Not once, for 20 years. And as I'm sitting here pondering this story, I'm thinking to myself, do we get it? Do we get it? 
She didn't have a mirror. She didn't want to look at herself because she was the mirror. God was the light. God was the glory. She was the mirror. Rejoice, church, because suffering brings glory to God. Brings glory to God. And as we begin to land the plane, the final reason here in the text that we should rejoice is because our faith, our creator is faithful to care for our soul. He's faithful to care for our soul. I want to reread verse number 19. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If that verse alone doesn't do it for you, then there's a problem. If that single verse, because he is our divine keeper, he is our divine healer and our creator, and he has divine faithfulness. It never ends. It never runs out. It is boundless. You know, the ancient Greek word here in the text, entrust, or in some versions, commit, is a, a word used for leaving money on deposit with a trusted friend. Such a trust was regarded as one of the most sacred things in life, and the friend was bound by honor to return the money fully intact. It was the same exact word that Peter used here that Jesus used in Luke chapter 23 when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The same exact word. And so when the Christian commits their soul to their creator, they leave their soul in a safe place. God is a faithful creator and we can give ourselves to him as pliable clay in his hands. Much of the, the agony that we put ourselves through in times of trial and suffering, it has to do with our disregard of God's faithfulness. He is sovereign and he has the right to do with us as he pleases, and yet in the midst of all of that, He is faithful and will only do for us what is ultimately best. Someone once told me that if I could see the end of God's plan, I would choose His way every single time. If I could see the end, I would choose His way every single time. You know, it was, it was Peter who also said one of the most important verses, I believe, in all of the Bible. And he said that Christ suffered once for sin and righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And that's why he died. That's why he came here and suffered as a human that he might bring us to God for his pleasure. For his pleasure. Do you know in Psalm chapter 16, he says that, the writer says that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And that is what Christ died for. That is the final reward for those who endure. That is the ultimate hope that we will be in the presence of God where there are pleasures forevermore. Where there is fullness 
of joy. Everything in this life that we see now as happiness or joy, it is overflow. It's secondary to the fullness of joy and the pleasures that are at the right hand of God. And if you don't want God as your ultimate hope, then you don't want heaven and you don't want what Christ died to give to you. But if you do, if Jesus is your inexpressible joy, then the way of life that Peter calls the Christian to live in this book is possible. It's possible. And this mindset and this way of life that we see here in the text is explained by unshakable, all-satisfying hope that is beyond this life. You know, the, the degrees of suffering and the forms of affliction that each one of us endure is going to be different than the next person. We may have similar situations or similar scenarios or similar medical um, outcomes. But every, every form is going to be a little different from person to person. But one thing, church... One thing that we all have in common until Jesus comes, we will all die. We will all die. And you're like, man, what a great way to end a Sunday talking about death. You and I and every other living human will come to a place where we will pass on. Where life here will be over. And we, and I chose to, to end this way for a, a very important reason. Because what happens, what happens after death? but we come to an awesome moment of reckoning. We come to an awesome moment of reckoning. And, and will you tremble at the unspeakable reality that in just moments you will face your Creator? Or will you rejoice because you're in the presence of God? Because he created your soul for his glory. And he is faithful to that glory and to all who love it and live for it. And so right now, right now at 1144 on March 12th of 2023, we have time to show where our treasure is. Is it in heaven or is it upon the earth? Because according to this portion of scripture, now is the time to shine for the glory of God. Now, right now, is time to shine for the glory of God. Trust him, church, in the midst of your suffering and keep rejoicing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for these truths that you have brought to light in this portion of scripture. God, we 
we pray. I pray now, Lord, that you would allow our minds to be clear so that we can meditate upon these things throughout the week. That we would see areas of struggle that need to be adjusted in how we approach our circumstances and situations. But above that, Lord, if we're, if we're coming out of a storm or we're preparing for one, I pray that our eyes uh, would be up. I pray that our eyes would be looking to those around us who are hurting. Start right here, Lord. Start right here in the midst of this congregation. Begin to form fellowship unlike anything that we have ever experienced because we're looking to model your love and mercy and grace that we want to walk with each other through our pain and our suffering and that we wouldn't, wouldn't easily, God, become annoyed with the people around us. Dare I even say, Lord, stretch us and grow us. Fill us with your heart and your mind. And God, in the moments that we don't know what to do and we don't know where to go and we don't even know what to say, let us be reminded that your word tells us that if we lack wisdom, that we can ask and that you will give it. And when we're alone in our, our homes and we don't know where to go. We don't even have words to cry out to you. Let us be reminded of Romans that says that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf when we don't know what to say. Fill us with your love and your grace and mercy. Give us the strength to, to walk in tune and in step with you. Give us boldness and liberty to speak to those around us. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.